is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Hello, Michelle Stanley along this afternoon. Good to have you with me today. This hour, you'll be off to feed the oysters. So whatever we're giving to them is the cleanest and best um, form of food that we can provide them. And essentially this is you know, primary production at its, at its fundamental, where it's, this is the, the food that we produce with sunlight and nutrients to feed to the animals that we grow out here. Yeah, later today, you're going to be off to the lab to find out how NT scientists produce oyster food. It's probably not the spot for a taste test. I reckon I'll stick to the oysters themselves. But it's a really interesting process and you'll get behind the scenes after one o'clock. Also today, fair chunks of the Territory have been copping the rain over the last couple of weeks. But spare a thought for your neighbours in Western Australia. Over in Fitzroy Crossing in the central Kimberley, ex-tropical cyclone Ellie has dumped hundreds of millimetres over just a couple of days. The river has reached its highest level ever on record. There are reports of stock and wildlife getting swept away in the floods and the bridge, the only connection between east and west, looks to have buckled. It's really exciting but also quite terrifying. Um, when you see that kind of amount of water uh, just rising. Yeah, you'll hear more about that uh, before one o'clock today. Plenty to chat about on the Country Hour. Do stick around. First up this afternoon, though, the company with plans for a large green hydrogen project on the Tiwi Islands has received design approval for a new type of ship which is crucial to the project's success. Provaris Energy can now move ahead with building the world's first compressed hydrogen ship. The company's $4.5 billion project involves using solar power solar power on Melville Island to generate hydrogen, which will be piped straight onto Provaris's special ships and transported to customers in Southeast Asia. Provaris's Gary Triglovcannon spoke to Dan Fitzgerald about what the, the design approval means for this Tiwi hydrogen project. So Provaris earlier this month achieved a world first and that, that is that it obtained design approval for its HG-NEO compressed hydrogen ship from the American Bureau of Shipping, ABS. Um, that HG-NEO is the name we give our 430-tonne or 26,000 cubic metre vessel. It, it is actually a big, a big deal because what it means for the company is that the ship's design has been verified as being capable of storing and transporting compressed hydrogen at bulk scale at 250 bar pressure. And at that pressure, just to give the audience an understanding, that's like um, the pressure in a scuba tank. So it, the, the design's been verified. The front end engineering design package that was required to get that approval is sufficient for shipbuilders now to quote on a price and schedule to actually build these ships with confidence. So look, Provaris is targeting 20, 25 for the commencement of such construction, and that's for our Tiwi H2 project that we'll talk about. But more importantly, critical safety studies, process and risk analysis was carried out as part of that approval as well. And that's why ABS was able to verify that it met the relevant safety aspects of the ship design and operation. And that's 
That's sort of the key for the approval is it meets the risk assessment. And so, as you, as you yep. said, this is a compressed hydrogen ship. Uh, why? What's unique about about that? The uniqueness is not anything in the technology of compression. Um, people compress hydrogen and other gases at the moment for um, small onshore storage vessels. What is unique and what is new new to the hydrogen industry? is the ability to store and transport such quantities of hydrogen in a vessel. You know, it's it's tough just to get, even in the vicinity of tonnes of storage, where our ship, you know, the smallest ship that we've got, the HD Neo, is 430 tonnes of hydrogen storage. So it doesn't involve anything complicated, like a process or anything. It just compresses the gas and stores it in two tanks in the ship's hull. And, and just, the- d- d- just for clarity, the, the tanks in the, the whole ship, it's not just storage tanks placed in a ship. The ship and the storage tanks are all one, one unit together making that storage vessel. So how would the ship be powered? The, sh- the ship is designed, um, the propulsion system is electric, which means it, will, it requires you know, electrical generation. So it's a bit of a grid, electrical grid on board. What powers that grid at the moment is technology really hasn't caught up to provide sufficient power from hydrogen production. Um, So we will look at alternate fuels in the early stages until the hydrogen industry is caught up with a propulsion system that the ship can use that will be running off hydrogen because there is already hydrogen on the ship. The, the, the ship is carrying the hydrogen, so it's, an, it's a beautiful, it's a unique way that the fuel is already on board and it's a green, clean burning fuel as well. That's, that's the aim of Provaris. And why have you decided to transport the hydrogen as a, as a compressed gas rather than as a liquid, which people might be familiar with, the, the big LNG vessels? Gee, um, it is. It's an it's an it's a it's a question that requires a long answer. But just really, in summary, is the LNG industry has 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 been and still is a wonderful a wonderful way of moving natural gas. Um, it's it's just it's been very fortunate for us being able to have that energy source, and be able to distribute it throughout the world for people to use. Unfortunately, hydrogen is a little bit, well, not a little bit, it's a lot more difficult gas. Um, natural gas liquefies at minus 160 degrees, which is quite low in, in the first place. Hydrogen liquefies at another 100 degrees below that at minus 253, which is extremely close to absolute zero. It's, it's, a, it's a NASA type scenario to actually achieve that so unfortunately hydrogen doesn't sort of lend itself to like what natural gas did natural gas also comes from beautifully big reservoirs in the ground that we can access 24 7 hydrogen as the world is moving towards is really a renewable energy source that makes the hydrogen and we all know that solar wind etc actually is not a stable baseload production. You're like flat 24-7. You know, the sun comes up and the sun goes down and therefore your hydrogen production varies, which isn't exactly what liquefaction and ammonia processes are looking for. 
But compression, on the other hand, is a very simple technology where if you produce the hydrogen, if and when you produce the hydrogen, you simply compress it and store it onto the ship. So we've got a full load-following technology to move the hydrogen. Um, other, We're just saying that has a distinct advantage to other processes that require a little bit more of a base load production profile, which is hard to achieve or expensive to achieve. If you're just tuning in, this is the Country Hour. My name is Dan Fitzgerald, and you're hearing from Gary Triglav-Cannon with uh, Provaris Energy, a company that has big plans for a green hydrogen project over on the Tiwi Islands. Uh, Gary, it's been a big year for the company. There's been a name change. Um, the Tiwi project's got major project status from the NT government. Um, how are things tracking along um, in terms of, of getting things up and running in the next few years? It is, thanks. The, um, it, it, it has been a journey. It sort of started 12 to 18 months ago when we first went and spoke to the key stakeholders, the Tiwi Land Council, the traditional owners, the Manupi um, clans and the NT government. And, you know, we kick, we kick-started it at the end of 21. During 22, we started doing the environmental process, more detailed discussions with stakeholders, meeting traditional landowners, understanding their needs and requirements, um, and also letting them understand what the project looks like, what's required, so there's no surprises. Um, as you said, we were awarded major project status by the NT government in August this year. We completed our referral submission. It was quite detailed. And so now we've got a clear path for the environmental impact statement in 23-24, um, we're starting land agreements, um, and we've also so I think 22 was was a year where Provaris tried to work out where it was heading and how and what it was going to try to achieve, and I think 23 is really cementing that concept in the environmental process to get environmental approval, to start doing the land agreements now, to start doing the solar monitoring, the front and engineering design of the solar farm and the hydrogen production facilities and discussions with offtake partners and EPC contractors. So Provaris is looking to, it's going to be a very big 2023 year for us and we're looking forward to it. With energy prices this year um, heading sky high, um, gas prices um, on the up and up, has that given your green hydrogen um, project a bit more impetus or a bit more attention? It, I, I should sort of preface this is, the, you know, the, the, world, the world is looking for net zero by 2050 and hydrogen just in general is being seen as the pathway to really make a major impact on that. So I should, I should also just be compression is not the silver bullet for everything. It, it, it is part of the mix. We will need we will need compression. We will need liquefaction. We will need ammonia. The, the task in front of us is huge in order to transition to what we're trying to achieve. Any, any, any bit of help for any kind of process is, is what's required. Higher energy prices, as you mentioned, do, do help people move towards an alternate fuel source like hydrogen. Um, it, it helps. It helps a lot. And so it is a positive for the hydrogen industry in general.
all going to plan. Um, when does Provaris hope to be exporting its first hydrogen from the Tiwi Islands? We're, we're looking at exporting hydrogen, which will be, it will be a, an extremely front, you know, will be one of the first movers for marine transport. You know, late 27, early 28 will be where, where we're targeting actually these ships being loaded at Port Melville on the Tiwis for export in the Southeast Asia market. That'll be exciting. Well, all the best with it. Um, thanks for having a chat with the Country Hour. Thank you very much. That's Gary Triglov-Cannon. He's the Chief Development Officer with Provaris Energy and we're speaking with Dan Fitzgerald about the company's design approval for the world's first compressed hydrogen ship for its project on Melville Island. It is 17 to 1. You're listening to the Country Hour. Let's have some Luke Bryan. This is hunting, fishing, loving every day. That's Luke Bryan. It's hunting, fishing, loving every day. It's 13 to 1. G'day, I'm Emma. G'day, I'm Tara. Welcome to Mimi College and you're listening to Country Hour. Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. Good to have your company. Let's head to Western Australia now because ex-tropical cyclone Ellie is still having quite an impact as she tracks over the Kimberley. Left WA now in the Kimberley. Steph Sinclair is the ABC's rural reporter in that region. Steph, what's the latest? Yeah, it's really wet, Michelle. The central Kimberley has really copped it over the past few days. We're seeing vision of huge volumes of water flowing down the mighty Fitzroy River, which actually reached a record high level of 14.88 metres at about 8 o'clock this morning. That's almost a metre above the previous record. Yeah, the water is flowing, overflowing into the town of Fitzroy Crossing and nearby communities like Mullajar. And we believe the Fitzroy Bridge has also been damaged. Main Roads is assessing that now, but we understand that damage is pretty significant. The road between the Derby intersection and Halls Creek is already completely closed off due to flooding, but we expect that road might be out of action for a while. There's also been an evacuation centre set up at Fitzroy's Recreation Centre. Natalie Davey was one of the residents evacuated this morning. The water just kept coming up, really. <laughs> um, we ha- we're, my house is on a mound. Um, we're about 50 metres away from the actual river bank, um, which comes over at when it's at 10 metres yep. and starts sort of flooding around, but it's never, ever gone over the mound, let alone come up the extra metre to our house. Um, but this flood is actually going to outdo all the other ones in recorded history. It's really exciting but also quite terrifying um, when you see that kind of amount of water uh, just rising. And because we've got creeks around us, that we're, we had water coming in from every single um, side and rushing underneath the house, so the mound got covered so residents from Fitzroy Crossing, like Natalie Davy, they've been evacuated. And I believe you've been on the phone this morning, Steph, to a number number of pastoralists in that region. What are you hearing from them? Yeah, as you can imagine, they're all really busy now. It's a pretty stressful time and everyone is really just trying to do all they can to keep their livestock and their infrastructure safe. You might have seen some footage of cattle being washed down the Fitzroy uh, river yesterday? Yeah, there were what, about half a dozen or so floating with the current under the Fitzroy Bridge. It's awful to see. 
Yeah, it is. And it's difficult to establish exactly how many cattle have been lost and where they've come from. Everyone in the area is really just flat out right now trying to figure out how to get a handle on this and are doing what they can to protect their livestock. There are several helicopters in the year as we speak working to muster cattle and horses to safety. And we believe there are also some homesteads and infrastructure that are under threat. That's unconfirmed at this stage. It is a pretty quiet time of year as far as work goes up here in the north of WA and there are a few people on holidays. So trying, they're trying to make their way back to the stations now. And there's obviously some access issues with that too. So that's making things just really hard for people to understand exactly what they're dealing with. How are they feeling? I mean, it's a difficult thing when you want the rainfall during the wet season, but obviously this has come pretty thick and fast. So how are people feeling on the ground? I think they were initially pretty pleased with some rain and uh, I think at the moment now it's just really everyone's in action stations uh, in a bit of survival mode trying to just do what they can to protect their livestock. They are hoping for some reprieve from this rain which is expected to come as ex-tropical cyclone Ellie moves west towards Broome hopefully in the next day or so. Steph, can you describe for listeners in the Territory the Fitzroy Crossing Bridge that sounds as though it might have sustained some damage and and the pictures would probably point to that. What does that mean, that damage potentially mean for people in the East Kimberley in particular? Yeah, so a lot of the East Kimberley really relies on the the Great Northern Highway to get a lot of uh, produce from the major supermarkets. It's a really vital supply chain link. And with the Fitzroy Crossing Bridge potentially damaged, we could see... uh, the, the supermarket's empty for quite some time and, and there being some difficulty trying to get other supplies to the East Kimberley, which essentially that's the only way we can get uh, stock from the West. Otherwise, it's coming from Darwin, which is, as you know, uh, the Timber Creek area has also copped a fair bit of rain recently and some road damage as well. So it could be uh, some empty shelves here in the East Kimberley for some time. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see what the uh, road report is from Main Roads in WA. But thanks for that update, Steph. I hope you can stay dry where you are. Thanks, Michelle. Steph Sinclair, she's the ABC's Kimberley Rural Reporter. And just in the last couple of minutes, the Fitzroy's actually cracked 15 metres. So the previous record that Steph mentioned a moment ago was 13 0.95 metres that was recorded in 2002 and this morning it got up to 14.88 but in the last few minutes it's officially hit 15 metres at Fitzroy Crossing and the Fitzroy Crossing Bridge that's on Highway 1, the Great Northern Highway. If you've seen photos online it's under a heck of a lot of water. There's one particularly stark image of a cow and a roo sitting in the water on the bridge. And you can see the back half of that image. It, the bridge looks to have sort of folded almost under the weight and the strength of the water that's going over it. So Steph mentioned that WA's main roads department was heading to inspect it. You would imagine it would be out of action for some time yet. People online are suggesting a few weeks at the minimum. 
Uh, so a major impact to the eastern Kimberley in WA there with the Great Northern Highway cut off at Fitzroy Crossing. The water is still over the bridge at the moment and we'll have to find out what kind of damage those roads will have sustained. Um, but it looks pretty severe, unfortunately. It's six minutes to one on the country hour. Here in the Territory, the rains have eased off a little bit. There were still some decent falls around the top end, though. Uh, what I had... 66 millimetres. There was 34 mils at Elizabeth Downs. The central Arnhem Plateau had 48 millimetres. And in central Australia, Ali Karung had 32 mils. David Connolly from Tipperary Station near Adelaide River says it's been one of the best starts to the wet season in a while. I've had a lot of rain, but um, 310 mils since um, the 23rd. This is the best rain we've had over the last two or three years at this time. Uh, we usually get our rain in late January, February, so this is a very good start, very wet start uh, for this time of year, For you know, according to our normal records. And what will this mean for your operations? You've also got dry land cotton on Tipperary. Yeah, that's right. It's not so dry land anymore. It's getting a lot of rain. Uh, we'll germinate the crop we got in, get our hay set, get our, get our cotton set, and... Um, get our cattle set the grass and the pastures that we've planted or will get away so um you know you're nothing if you don't have rain how have the last few wet seasons been like for pastoralists in the top end uh pretty ordinary pretty ordinary right through probably for the last no certainly the last two or three years but maybe up to five years for some people so um this has been a good start and it's gone right through the territory um some some of the areas may have missed out but you know you know as a whole on average um, the territory's had a fantastic start to the wet. What are all the what are all the ringers saying, mate? What's the what's the talk amongst the station? Well, I don't know. All the most of the ringers on these cattle stations are all gone home by this time of year, so there's not many about. Um, the station owners and managers, though, are just saying it's a a, a really fine start, and uh, unlike we've had over the last few years. David Connolly from Tipperary Station. He was speaking with John Daly. It's not just the north and the west getting all the rain either. A pastoralist in western New South Wales copped his 12-month average rainfall in the month of October alone. And he reckons he's likely to be cut off for another month because of some recent flooding of the Darling River. Stuart Laleva says the floods have caused an awful lot of damage and he believes coordination between some of the government agencies has been woeful. He says conditions on his property are pretty difficult at the moment. At least three weeks, I reckon a month, the weather depending. Um, the water's going down, it's dropped um, a metre and a half, I suppose. Um, but a lot of the roads are still under and uh, yet to you know, get a good look at whatever road damage. Um, but to get at the road damage, obviously things have got to be dry enough to be able to do it. So um, I'd reckon three weeks a month minimum. Any um, stock losses or concerns there? No, as far as flooding goes, no. Um, we got, like everybody else, a uh, real hiding with the flies um, and the ability to get, them, get at them after that you know, October where we had... 12 months of rain in October and obviously, you know, more in November. Um, 12 months all, all at once in the month? In the month, yeah, right. plus what we've had in November. So we've had roughly, um, I wouldn't say 600 mils here for the year, but it's double our rainfall, okay, but we had 12 inches of that in October. And But obviously you've been watching the, the water issues with interest, Menindi, not far away from you, and you, you think things could have been done a lot better? Um, yeah, I think it's the, it's the lack of um, information and, and um, 
that is the killer and all this, and it seems to be a fairly common complaint, not only from our patch, but right up north and, you know, east to west. Um, and for whatever reason, I just don't know, understand why the, you know, the local knowledge hasn't been taken into account. Um, and it, and that is, seems to be the catalyst for a lot of things, as I said, from east to west, north to south. Uh, there seems to be this reluctance to take into local knowledge. Um, I'm not saying that the locals should be the decision makers by any means, but they should have a seat at the table and the information that they have should be taken into account and treated seriously. That's Stuart Oliva. He's a pastoralist in western New South Wales speaking with Michael Condon about the recent rainfall and flooding at his place. It's been an incredibly wet month or a few months really for a lot of people right across Australia. Uh, just about a minute away from one o'clock, let's, let's check in now with uh, some of the road closures around the Territory. Dan Fitzgerald joins, joins us and you have some good news about the Barclay Highway. Yeah, the Barclay Highway is back open 24-7 now. For the last few days, it has only been open from uh, 8am to 4pm, but uh, those time restrictions have been lifted. Uh, The Department of Infrastructure says the repair works on that road, they will continue and single-lane closures will occur as required. But at the moment... um, it is open 24-7. Very good. Uh, still other roads closed around the Territory. Uh, the Tablelands is closed between the Barclay Highway intersection and the Barclay Stock Route. Uh, Tanami, the dirt section, still closed. The Plenty and the Sandover in Central Australia uh, are still shut because of flooding. And the Buntine Highway in the VRD, that is open to high clearance full drives only uh, with uh, the advice is that there's some various uh, locations where there's some damage, so motorists are advised to drive with caution there. Thank you very much for that, Dan. And, of course, if you are travelling, just head to the Roads Report NT website to make sure you've got the latest information because, you know, it can change pretty quickly. Uh, we're heading off to the news now as we approach 1 o'clock. After that, you'll get all the latest in the weather. It's news time. It's 1. I'm Eddie Artoy. I was born in Pine Creek and I was born here on the 19th of September 1937 and I worked and lived here all my life and you're listening to the Country Hour. Hello, hello. Michelle Stanley with you today. It's five past one and coming up this half hour, growing oyster food. To be honest, I've never really given it much thought what oysters eat, but there's a lab in the top end which produces a fair amount of algae every day to help produce oysters for your entree. So we produce 100 litres of algae a day just within this room and our larger room next door, which is our continuous bag culture, can produce much more than that. It's a super interesting process and I'll take you behind the scenes very shortly. But let's head to the Weather Bureau first. Moses Rayco is with you from the Bureau of Meteorology. Hello, Moses. Hello, good afternoon. Rain in the last 24 hours, what have we had? Uh, Look, for the 24 hours, uh, the highest rainfall that's been uh, observed there is around the water area, so we saw 66 millimetres there, but some some good falls um, over other parts of the Daly District. Um, Lianya came up with uh, just under 53 millimetres itself around Darwin, Um, and also over the Arnhem District, um, saw up to 50 millimetres there as well. So still seeing those, uh, I guess, quite fresh winds move across uh, the top end, as we have been seeing um, over the last, I guess, um, 
week or so almost, I guess. Um, it's just those wins have just backed off in terms of their strength um, today compared to what we have been seeing. So um, the severe weather warning that we have had out um, over the last few days across the top end, um, we're no longer running with that in terms of the... Um, risks for damaging wind gusts. It's not to say that it's not um, going to happen, but the prevailing conditions that we had up till then, um, that risk is kind of dropping off. It hasn't gone out completely though. We might see some, if there are any thunderstorms, they could be quite gusty um, over parts of um, uh, the top end today. But um, in, and it also with those winds just backing off a little, uh, the, the risk of the damaging surf has also dropped back. So we've cancelled those warnings, the severe weather warnings that is. Um, <clears throat> so that's uh, that's the main story there. Um, is is but, there likely to be uh, with the winds dying down? Well, not being as strong and as prevalent, but yeah. um, the rainfall is that likely to drop off as well? Uh, they probably will drop off over the next few days um, as the winds kind of ease, but not to say that we won't see any more again. It definitely is maintaining the, the chance of some showers, uh, thunderstorms, pretty much right across the Territory, in fact. Um, maybe just the far south over the next few days where those chances may drop back for a brief period in terms of any uh, shower or thunderstorm activity across the Territory. But definitely for the top end, um, yeah, definitely those... Um, uh, we still could see, I should mention this, some of those showers or storms that do move through, they could still be quite squally uh, in nature, so quite gusty and fresh winds, like those coastal wind warnings that we have out um, at the moment, particularly for the west coast, we're expecting coastal wind warnings to continue, um, at least until um, the later part of the working week at this stage, um, but just the predominant um, features that we were seeing, even showers were, were bringing in the really quite um, gusty winds. So that's why we had the damaging wind gusts for the uh, top end uh, over the last several days. Um, so the risk is dropping back, but still could see some quite squally showers or storms pushing through the top end. And that's going to continue for the next few days into the rest of the week? or Particularly for the West Coast, Michelle, we probably still seeing some quite fresh to strong winds impacting the Western coastal waters. Um, and even the North Tiwi Coast too. Um, north Coast as well out to Thursday at this stage. But as we move further into the weekend, the weekend, probably seeing um, the you know those winds to back off uh, a little bit further as well. Um, and the rainfall, of course, uh, dropping back too. Now, we heard a little bit earlier in the program just how much rain ex-tropical cyclone Ellie has been dropping in the Kimberley. When is that system expected to make its way back to the NT? She's going to turn around, isn't she? In the longer term, that's right, Michelle. Like At the moment, it's really... It's probably located over western parts of the Kimberley at the moment and it's going to continue or is the expectation is that it will continue to track towards the west. Um, at some stage, um, maybe Thursday, uh, it may, well, we are expecting it to swing back towards the southeast and um, make its way um, that direction, moving back towards Central Australia. Um, so there is a chance that we may, it's highly dependent on exactly which track it actually takes as well across Central Australia, but there are, there is a case where we may see that track back into southern parts of the Territory, potentially over the weekend. Um, if that does 
play out, then of course the chances of seeing some heavy falls uh, will return or severe weather may return uh, to parts of southern parts of the Territory um, later in the week and more so in the weekend actually. How much rain could it, could it bring to Central Australia? Yeah, it, look, that really depends um, on what shape it's actually in by the time it gets back down this way. Um, it's maintained its structure pretty well um, since the end of December, in fact. Um, there, e- there are hints that we may see um, the low as it moves further into central Australia and, and much later into early next week, the structure of it will probably weaken, potentially. Um, we are talking seven days out. Um, but nonetheless, it could still see some... some um, uh, you know, increased chance of some heavy falls. In terms of the amounts, um, it, like I said, we'll just keep a close eye on that one um, with regards to the, the amounts as they co- push through, but definitely increasing chances of um, some um, heavy falls across central parts, um, potentially over the weekend in southern parts of the Territory. So in the south, uh, it's been quite hot of late. We have had some elevated fire danger ratings um, there uh, of late. Um, We are expecting a weak ridge to push into the south, so we will start to see some relief in terms of those temperatures, particularly of places like Ilara, maybe even Alice Springs as well, um, seeing those temperatures starting to drop back from tomorrow and just drying out just ever so slightly. There could still be some mid-level cloud about um, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, And like I said, if there's any Across the Territory, that's probably the lowest chance of seeing showers and storms over the coming couple of days is in the far southern parts of the Territory. So temperatures dropping back to what they've been seeing, quite uncomfortable warm nights too as well, particularly around Yulara, but those minimums are expected to to drop back um, more closer to probably average, I would say, um, for this time of the year. And there is that heat wave warning in the Lasseter region. Is that going to drop off in the next day or so? It's going to drop off from tomorrow, in fact, um, as that ridge pushes in. So it was really just a a kind of a shorter term thing, that heat wave warning that was issued. Um, It's really for today because we're seeing those temperatures. Let's have a look at it now. It's about 36 degrees at Yulara. We're kind of expecting a top of into the high 30s down there in the Lasseter district. But yeah, once that ridge pushes in um, and we might see that... um, change push in seeing those temperatures dropping back um, from tomorrow looking at around 32 for places like Ilara 34 for Alice Springs by Thursday you know we could see 29s for example in Alice Springs um, so temperatures dropping back over the next couple of days in the south. Very good to hear we'll keep an eye on what uh, tro- ex-tropical cyclone Ellie does as well and, and what she brings to central Australia but we'll catch you later on Moses. Yeah definitely Michelle and let, definitely let the uh, make sure they keep Uh, up to date with um, what we're putting out on the website. Absolutely. That's Moses Rako from the Bureau of Meteorology. Yeah, of course, head to the the BOM website or even the app to get the latest on all those warnings uh, and the tracking of uh, ex-tropical cyclone Ellie as she makes her way through the Kimberley and then turns around potentially back to the Territory. It's 14 past one. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. A lot of the time, farming can be pretty hard yakka. Under the sun, out in the elements, particularly when there are heatwave warnings getting put on. Imagine being in primary production 
while also working in a cool room fridge. It sounds pretty good in summer, I reckon. Annie Brown recently went out to the NT Fisheries Research Centre at Channel Island and got to take a look at how staff produce the food they feed their oysters and broodstock. You can notice the little um, windscreen here with a blind, so then we can um, lower them down. But when we crank the lights up, it can get quite bright and not great for people's eyes. It's yeah, just, right. So we put that. At the back of the Darwin Aquaculture Centre, there's a lab inside a cool room that's lined with shelves of bubbling liquids in glass flasks and jars. But there's nothing sinister going on here. It's just primary production. So this is our primary algae lab at the Darwin Aquaculture Centre. We use this facility to maintain a high degree of biosecurity control to bring up a variety of different algae species to a volume and a density that we can then feed to our baby oysters. That's Matt Osborne. He's the program leader for aquaculture and regional development with NT Fisheries. In the lab, they make the purest possible algae to feed to oyster larvae. Uh, This is just for our oysters. um, And because the algae here is fed to the larvae, which are the most sensitive phase of the oyster's growth, um, we maintain a very clean environment to prevent any kind of bacterial or other contamination into the feedstock. So whatever we're giving to them is the cleanest and best um, form of food that we can provide them. And essentially this is primary production at its its fundamental where it's, this is the, the food that we produce with sunlight and nutrients to feed to the animals that we grow out here. So how much algae do you produce here? So we produce 100 litres of algae a day just within this room. And our larger room next door, which is our continuous bag culture, can produce much more than that. All of the equipment they use is extremely clean. They even need a fancy dishwasher. So this here is our new autoclave, which is essentially a giant pressure cooker. It uses heat, steam and pressure to sterilise things. So the carboys you see here, they go into our algae lab first go through our autoclave to make sure that everything is super sterile. So it cooks it, it heats it up to around 200 degrees with high pressure, high humidity, kills everything that could possibly be in that water. So then when we move it into our algae lab, we know that that's starting from a very clean slate and it's not bringing any contaminants into that. So everything has to be incredibly clean, like absolutely sterile before it enters that Absolutely, yep. Super sterile, super clean, and it's our job as the technicians to maintain that with all the Um, hand washing, hand wipes, ethanol sprays that's required to uh, keep that as secure and clean as it possibly can be. Alright, and into another cool room. In the room next door they have human-sized 100 litre bags of algae hanging from the roof and the staff have cutely nicknamed them Zoopadoopers. This one smells different. (laughs) (laughs) So this is our continuous algae harvest system which is designed, sometimes called the Zooper Duper Room. There's big, giant, different coloured Zooper Dupers. So you'd make more algae this way then? A bigger yeah, quantity? so this is for bulk algae production. So we're able to, to maintain um, algae almost ongoing as well. So we can bring them up to a really good density, like these really dark coloured bags here. And we can maintain that for a very, very long time and then harvest from them as we need them. So we can produce hundreds of litres this way and we're limited with the capacity of the carboy room. 
but once the oysters are able to feed on this, they're obviously consuming a lot more because they're a bigger animal, so we, we increase our ag production. And they are like an array of colours you've got from like a lime green down to like a very organic soil brown happening. What's the difference between the different bags? So these are different species of algae. Um, even though there's brown, there's actually three different types of brown algae. And the darker the colour, the more algae cells per mill. So the, ri- the richer the colour, the longer the bags have been active, the, the more dense the feed is. So the more we get, more bang for our buck. So the amount of water we're harvesting has more nutritional value based on the more cells per mill. So these are the harvest tanks. So the zoopadoopas drain through a pipe and they come into this container that we have different collection devices in. You can see all the algae in there. And then once our crew are ready to feed the oysters, they can just come here and harvest some out of these bottom lines so they're not having to go into that room and we can keep that as clean as possible. Less people going in there is less chance of contamination. So it's like a little tap, they come and just tap out some... Yeah, a keg of algae, you could just about say. (laughs) It's on tap. (laughs) Does the heat play like a a role in the production of algae? I mean, being in the cool rooms and coming out here into the the build-up? Yeah, you'll notice that the algae is being produced in air-conditioned rooms, and that's actually because the algae are temperate species that have been used in the oyster industry down south, so we've been using those species to produce our own. One of the things we're looking to do in the future is identify some of the local strains of algae and compare that nutritional value to what we're using from these temperate species and then see how the oysters respond to that as a new feed source as well. That's Matt Osborne. He's the program leader for aquaculture and regional development for NT Fisheries. He was giving Annie Brown a tour of the algae lab, the algae they use to feed the oysters. It produces hundreds of litres of algae each day, making it the largest algae producer in the top end. It's 21 past one on the country hour. You're going to learn how to pick the best fruit for your fruit platter next after this from Johnny Cash. That is Johnny Cash and Get Rhythm, 23 past one on the country. I'm Michelle Stanley along with you this afternoon. And there's nothing like a good fruit platter on your table in summer, maybe during a backyard cricket comp or a sweet treat at the beach. But how do you make sure the fruit you're buying at your local supermarket is actually going to taste as good as it looks on your plate. Lucy Cooper went to find out. The experience of biting into a cherry or taking a chunk out of a watermelon piece can be soured when the fruit doesn't quite taste right. But the experts are here to help with some tips and tricks for picking the best fruit off supermarket shelves. Larry Griffin, uh, manager of the Townsville um, Simon George and Sons. So as we enter December, we do come across some lovely stone fruit. It's been a really tough start of the season for a lot of farmers, just the the rain across the entire eastern seaboard. There's good stuff out there. It's going to be a little bit more expensive this year. Um, All I can recommend is try to pick fruit that's a little bit riper. Shelf life has been affected with all the rain, so if you pick the right product, you know you're getting a quality product, and how you tell something's ripe is you just give a little touch. should be a little bit um, soft, and it should have a delicious smell. So if you're not getting a really good smell, it's not ripe, and 
you can take the risk and buy it early if you want, but I'd recommend probably trying another fruit line. So we have some beautiful plums here. Um, they are dark purple. They're a little bit um, soft to touch. Um, smells not quite there yet. Give it another day or two, it's probably gonna come along. And plums are eating the best um, at the moment out of all the stone fruit. And the season shouldn't be as affected as much because that plum season starts later and goes through to May. So where are these uh, plums coming from? These plums are currently coming from Victoria. They look wonderful at the moment. Uh, in terms of people all across Australia, you'll be really consuming fruit from the entire country, won't you? Yes, you will. Yep. Perfect. Moving on, uh, let's hit these guys. What have we got? So we got some beautiful peaches at the moment. Um, we are buying them in firm just so they travel all right and then we're ripening them up on site for our clients. Again, just wait for them to just be a little bit soft and have that beautiful smell before purchasing. What should you be looking at when you're going to go purchase some peaches? Is it, is it does fuzz matter or something? Well, peaches have fuzz, so if you're looking at a fuzzy um, fruit, it's probably going to be a peach. If there's no fuzz, it's going to be a nectarine. Just looking for something that's not blemished, has a nice smell. Um, a little bit um, tiny spots are okay. That Those can be sugar spots. It just means the fruit's going to be really sweet as it ripens. Wow, okay. And finally, up the top, something that I think many Australians love is delightful apricots. Apricots have been eating fantastic this year for Australian fruit, especially so early. Um, they do not look the best because they have been weather affected. So again, pay attention to more to how it's smelling and how it's feeling um, and, and go by that and don't mind the odd blemish or dimple on them. They're still going to eat really good and if you're cooking with them then you know, the little blemish is not going to matter at all. Yeah, you should get a decent apricot smell from them. They should be soft to touch. You're really looking for the smell most of all. Larry Griffin, the Townsville base manager for fruit and vegetable wholesaler Simon George and Sons. Keeping with stone fruit, here is Tim Reed of Reed's Fruits in Tasmania discussing how best to pick cherries. Best if the cherries are shiny, the skin is shiny, and ideally the stem on the cherry is green. It's a demonstration of freshness. Once the stems get a bit dry, it's demonstrating they may have been picked for quite a while or they haven't been in refrigeration. So, you know, the best cherries are uh, those shiny-looking fresh ones, and uh, that's probably the best way to select a good cherry. Let's move tropical now, and I'm going to give you a pineapple tip. You want to make sure your fruit is an orange-reddish colour on the outside, and if you grab a pineapple leaf from the top of the fruit, if it pulls out easy, then that pineapple is ripe and ready to eat. Staying in the tropics, it's a Queensland delicacy, so let's find out from Lee Spence of Lambert's Produce in Townsville how to pick the best lychee. So at the moment we're looking at uh, local Bingham lychees. Uh, at the moment they're really ripe, ready to eat. They lose their greenness, uh, they lose the green out of them and they become sort of a bright, vibrant red colour. Uh, that's when they're ripe, ready to peel. Uh, they will always have a little bit of green around the stem, but for the most of the fruit, when the most of the fruit is red, it'll be nice and ripe, ready to eat. Do you think our fruit butters will be costing a bit more this year compared to previous years? Yes, definitely. Um, price of cherries is one of the main ones. Uh, they're going to be a little bit high this year. Uh, strawberries are on their way up as well, unfortunately. Uh, things like grapes, lychees, we've got local lychees at the moment, so they've come down in price. Uh, our grapes are nice and cheap at the moment. 
and um, our mango should be coming down as well. We have buckets of mangoes. They're nice and cheap. Okay, so we have ticked most summer fruit off except for the mighty mango. He is mango grower Ben Martin of Bowen with his best tips and tricks. Have a good smell of the fruit. Um, you'll pick the mango up, don't squeeze it too hard, and but you should be able to smell the aroma um, of it coming through. Um, and, yeah, look at your colour and your, your shape of it and, yeah, you'll get a nice product. That's North Queensland mango grower Ben Martin finishing that story from Lucy Cooper. You can head to the ABC Rural website to read more tips and tricks on putting together the best summer fruit platter. If that hasn't got you hungry, I don't know what will. But that is it for me for the Country Hour today. Tomorrow, things will be a little different with the cricket between Australia and South Africa kicking off at the SCG. If you typically listen online or back on the podcast, no changes for you. But if you listen on the old-fashioned wireless, I'll be with you during the lunch break. So I'll catch you around 11 tomorrow morning.